And I'd like to call your attention to the Gospel of John. This morning we'll be in the 15th chapter. We'll be reading together the first eight verses. John 15. I am the vine, the true vine, and my father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit he prunes, so that it will be even more fruitful. You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Remain in me as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If you do not remain in me, you are like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. This is to my Father's glory, that you hear much fruit, that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. So we're considering those words uh, this morning together. As we do that, for those of you that take notes, I just want to uh, mention that um, those who are in the technology uh, booth over there are flying sort of blind. They're able to see what's on the screen, but they don't have any um, advance warning or notice of what's going to appear. They just hit that next little button and it appears. And um, so um, a little grace as uh, you try to fill in those blanks and uh, we'll try to work ourselves through this together. There was an elderly couple and they were flying first class. They were sitting behind a businessman who was increasingly frustrated with them. He had been behind them while they were at the gate. And again, he had been behind them while they were boarding the plane. They moved slow. And he, he was in a bit of a hurry. When their meal was served, they delayed this businessman again by having to get some pills from the overhead bin, and they inadvertently dropped an, an old battered duffel bag into the aisle. What is the matter with you people, he exploded, loud enough for the entire first-class cabin to hear. I am amazed you ever get anywhere. Why didn't you just stay home? To further register his anger, the man sat down and reclined his seat back as hard as he could, so hard that the gentleman's tray behind him spilled the food all over him and his wife. The flight attendant apologized profusely. I am so sorry. Is there anything we can do for you? She asked. And the husband explained that it was their 60th wedding anniversary and they were flying for the very first time. Let me at least bring you a bottle of wine, said the flight attendant. And she did. When it was uncorked and the bottle handed to the elderly gentleman, he stood up and proposed a toast 
And then he poured the entire bottle of wine over the head of the gentleman sitting in the seat in front of him. The impatient, inconsiderate gentleman and everyone in the cabin cheered. Hurried people are neither loving nor lovable. Robert Munger, in My Heart Christ's Home, pictures Jesus asking to come in and check out each one of the rooms of our hearts, one by one, the study, the workroom, the nursery, the dining room, the bedroom. And this morning, Jesus wants to come into our living room, a quiet, comfortable room with a fire in the fireplace. Use your imagination. A couple of plush, overstuffed chairs, a bookcase, and a very intimate atmosphere. Upon entering, Jesus seems to be delighted by what he sees. Let's come here often, he says. It's secluded. It is quiet. We can have good talks and fellowship here in this room. I'll be here every morning, he promised. Meet me here, and we can start off the day together. Munger writes, morning after morning, I'd go to the living room. He'd often take a book of the Bible off the shelf from the bookcase. He would open it and we would read it together. Those times were wonderful. He'd talk to me. I'd respond. Our friendship deepened. But little by little, under the pressure of my many responsibilities, this time shortened. And then it all but disappeared. I became too busy to spend my precious time to be with Christ. It wasn't a deliberate decision, just an inevitable one. One morning, as I ran past the doorway into the living room on my way to a meeting, I noticed the fire in the fireplace. And I noticed Jesus sitting there, just as he promised. A couple of weeks ago, we talked about a three-chair church. This morning, we're going to talk about a two-chair personal relationship with Jesus Christ. You'll notice these chairs are not side by side. These chairs are directly facing one another, and they are close. If you have read your Bible, you know that God created our soul to search for him. The psalmist in particular is obsessed with that thought. So often throughout the 150 psalms, he talks about it as in Psalm 42. As the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you, O God. Psalm 63, you, God, are my God. Earnestly I seek you. I thirst for you. Psalm 143. My soul thirsts for you like a, like a parched land thirsts for water. The psalmist suggests that God lifts us up, Psalm 145. He comes and forgives our sins and heals our diseases, Psalm 103. And as a result, we cling to him, Psalm 63, and our soul finds rest in him, Psalm 62. Because 
It is desperate to be whole. Our soul is God-smitten, it is God-crazed, and it is God-obsessed. Our soul is designed to seek God with its whole being. Our mind may be obsessed with idols. Our will may be enslaved to habits. Our body may be consumed by appetites, but our soul will never find rest until it rests in God. In the beginning, when God created the heavens and the earth, he built an amazing living room, a quiet, intimate setting best described in Genesis with the word garden. The Bible tells us it was the perfect home for Adam and for Eve, the perfect place for God to just be with them. That garden God created presents his great desire to be with us, his creatures, like in the living room of our heart. For our soul to be well, it needs time with God. That's how he created it and designed it to be. There's an interesting phrase in that third chapter of Genesis in that eighth verse. It goes like this. Then Adam and Eve heard the sound of the Lord as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. Since God is a spirit, what does it sound like when God goes for a walk? And how does a spirit walk? But that's the key word in that verse there, the word walking. You see, walking is something you do with somebody you care about, with somebody you want to be with, a friend with a friend, a parent with a child, two people who are in love. So it's not really about the walk. It's not about getting the exercise. It's really not about the destination of the walk. It's really about just being together. It's about the relationship. The God of the Bible is a God who longs to be with us. He longs to be with us so much that he made our souls for walking, for being together, for simply being with But since we've sinned, we messed up, we've disobeyed God, we prefer to hide from God among the trees and the bushes and to stay out of the living room. But the truth is, God will not be denied. If God wants to be with us, God will be with us, so he pursues us. In fact, the entire scripture is about how God pursues us, you and I. He goes after us, he seeks us, he relentlessly is after us just so he can be with us. God calls out, where are you? God knew exactly where they were. He didn't have to ask. What he is saying is, I told you that I would be here in the morning to meet with you. I told you I would be here in the cool of the day to walk with you. Where are you? So this morning, God is asking each one of us that very same question. Where are you in relationship to me?
Some of you have heard of a man named Enoch. We know very little about Enoch, except that the scripture says he walked with God. It's about all it tells us. But scripture also walked with Noah. Scripture tells us also Abraham walked with Noah and his son Isaac walked with God and his other son Ishmael walked with God. We read that God was with Jacob, the master manipulator, and then we read that God was with his people. He was with all of Israel. God was with Joseph. And here's where the phrase with God starts to get a bit interesting. You see, Joseph runs into this hard patch of life. Things aren't going so well. And we are told that the Lord was with Joseph in slavery. He was with Joseph while Joseph was incarcerated, while he was in prison. So we understand that God doesn't just want to be with us in the garden, nor does he limit his interest in being with us to the living room. God wants to be with us everywhere under any and all circumstances, including those that are painful and difficult and imperfect. God was with Moses and Gideon and Samuel and Ruth and Daniel and many others throughout the Old Testament until a baby is born. And the angel comes to Joseph and says that his wife's baby that is going to be born must be named Emmanuel, which means God with us. See, Jesus, Emmanuel, gives us a clear glimpse of what a being with God life is all about. Days before his death, Jesus makes an amazing statement. He says, I'm the vine, and you are the branches. If you will be with me as I am with you, then you will bear much fruit. But apart from me, you will do nothing. Nothing. So bearing fruit, doing wonderful things for God and his kingdom. And the primary doing, according to the scripture, is being with God. It is abiding in the vine. Because abiding in the vine allows us to bear fruit. If we don't abide, if we don't spend time with God, then our life Won't amount to much. Jesus actually says, it won't amount to anything or nothing. So Jesus initiates this grand plan when he appoints 12 disciples so that, as Mark says, they might be with him. That's why he picked them. And they together transform the world in which you and I live. There's a story about Mary and Martha. And Martha invites Jesus and his 12 associate pastors to come and to join them for dinner one evening. They are all there together. And Martha, she is in the kitchen. She is preparing a wonderful meal. And her sister Mary, as you know, the story is just sitting there with Jesus in the living room. And then Martha comes in and complains to Jesus about her sister's unwillingness to assist her in the kitchen. 
And Jesus said, few things are needed. Indeed, only one thing. The one thing is being with Jesus, but only one thing. And Mary has chosen what is better. Being is more important than doing. After ascending back into heaven, Jesus sent his spirit, and again the scripture says, to be with them. He calls out a people in Acts 2, a community, to be with him. You and I know that community to be the church. The church, Luke tells us, was devoted to being with Jesus even after he ascended into heaven and they were with him because they were devoted to his teaching, to the word. They were devoted to prayer. They were devoted to fellowship and they were devoted to breaking bread together. Some centuries ago, there was a man named Nicholas Herman who became a Christian by looking at a tree. It was winter and the tree was barren. But Nicholas knew that in the spring, that tree would grow leaves. So he started to think and it struck him that if God did that for trees, how couldn't God do that for him as well? So when his military career was suddenly ended by injury, he found himself a job at the local monastery as the dishwasher, taking all the slop from all the monks and cleaning it up. After doing that for years and years and years, he was finally promoted at some point to cobbler where he got to reshoe the shoes of the monks. But he decided from that day as he began to devote his life to being with God. Today we know him better as Brother Lawrence. After his death, some of his letters were accumulated and compiled together in a book entitled Practicing the Presence of God. You can download the entire book on the internet for free. Interestingly, it is now known to be the second most read book outside of the Bible. An amazing testimony for somebody who was just a dishwasher, just and just a cobbler. When a person is with God, it doesn't matter where, whether you're the king or president or a cobbler or a dishwasher. When a person is with God, their soul thrives. Not from their accomplishments, but from simply being with God. And they bear much fruit. They are transformed. And in their transformation, they are transforming. So now it's our turn. How do we, living in our high-tech, economically focused, fast-paced world, with its constantly changing priorities and politics and morality, find time to be with Jesus? How many moments of our day can we fill with a conscious awareness of his presence? How can we spend more time in the living room of our heart with him, in his presence, in prayer, in his word? 
How much do we think about God when we're at home? How much do we think about God when we're at work? How much do we think about God when we're in the middle of a meeting or we're riding in the car or we're online or we're watching the news or when we're having a conversation with other people or when we're just doing the dishes? Do we keep keep God in our mind throughout the day regardless of what activity we're engaged and involved in? More often than I'd like to admit, I realize that sometimes I don't think about God for hours at a time. And I'm a minister, and I work at a church. And every week, I'm, I'm encouraged to say what I've heard from him speak to me publicly. It is easy to feel hurried, swamped, impatient, frustrated, preoccupied, and pressured. And that's why it's a discipline. That's why it requires intentionality. That's why it requires hard work. And so God regularly taps me on the shoulder. He whispers into my ear. He says, Doug, over the next few hours, you can do life with me or you can do life without me. You can feel sorry for yourself or you can be thankful. You can think you're in control or you can accept the fact that I am actually running the entire universe. You decide. What's it going to be, Doug? So I need to decide all over again. Sometimes it's a day at a time, sometimes an hour at a time, sometimes moment by moment. But the truth is, it makes no sense to try and do life without God, not even for a few minutes. Sadly, most people try. Please understand, life with God doesn't mean adding a whole lot of religious activities to your day. Doing life with God simply means being increasingly aware of God's presence throughout our day. Conversing continually with him during the day and turning our personal agenda over to his will and rule. In exchange, we receive an inner peace. We find our soul nurtured, and we bear fruit. By contrast, life without God will starve your soul to death, literally and quickly. When it comes to being with God, there are three fundamental statements that I'd like to share with you that we can talk about and continue to discuss. The first is, God wants to make every moment of our life glorious with his presence. God wants to make every moment of our life glorious with his presence. You see, God doesn't just want to be with us. He wants to make our time together and our whole life Glorious. Now, glorious isn't a word that we commonly use, but in my estimation, it's the one that most accurately fits and defines what God wants to do with our soul. He wants to fill us with beauty and with splendor and with wonder. It's what is in us that people notice when they say, you know, there's something different about you than other people. I can't put my finger on it. I don't quite know what it is. 
but it's there. This isn't reserved just for saints or super spiritual people. God wants this for all who call upon him, call upon his name, all who claim to be his disciples, all who are his sons and daughters, all who believe in speak Jesus. Christians often focus on trying not to sin. The problem with that is it means we're constantly focused on sin, constantly thinking about it. The truth is God wants us to focus on him, to practice his presence, to be conscious of his presence during as many of the 86,400 seconds that there are in a day. The psalmist writes, I have set the Lord always before me, Psalm 16. Paul says, we need to take captive every single thought to make it obedient to Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 10. Notice the words with me for a moment, set and take captive. Those are active words. That means that you and I are engaged in this process as, as well. We have an active role. We think about God for a moment, and then our monkey mind steps in and distracts us. We go from selfishness to selflessness in milliseconds. We go from a sense of peace to worry in the blink of an eye. But God is there and he continues to invite us back over and over and over again. The chair facing him is always empty unless we're sitting in it. It's always available and ready. Second, the best way to start doing life with God is in small moments. When I'm relaxed, when I'm on vacation, when I stand in the mountains, when I stand by a waterfall, when I'm walking along a beautiful lake or ocean, it is fairly easy to be conscious of being with God. It's relatively easy to be with God on Monday, Thursday on Resurrection Sunday or during the Christmas services when we come together and sing all the great hymns of faith and we spend time in reflection and praise. On those occasions, no one needs to remind us. But these moments don't happen all that often. Every day isn't Easter. And so we need to learn to look deliberately for God in the ordinary daily moments of life. In the church here, this day, July 9, is considered ordinary time. And here we are looking for God. Munger suggests starting every day with a few moments together. Morning after morning, he writes, listening to him through his word and spirit, speaking to him in prayer. It can be as simple as, good morning, Lord. Thank you for this brand new day. Please be with me. Let's walk together. Give me a symbol as consciously visualizing him sitting in the living room across from us as we pray, as we meditate, as we read his word. Two chairs. He and I. Jesus is already sitting in one of them. He promised. He's still there. 
It can be as simple as using the traffic delays to reflect on him. Red light, pause, and pray. It can be as simple as consciously reviewing our calendar and knowing he's looking over our shoulder or intentionally pausing a minute when we move from one activity to the next and just think about God keeping the hours as the monks did, pausing periodically to acknowledge his presence. The reality is we are almost always in a hurry. We're five, can't wait till we get to be six. When we're in middle school, all we want to do is get into high school. When we're in college, we can't wait to get out into the, into the workforce and make some real money. When we're single, we can't wait till the time we get married. We always want what we don't have. We always want what's a little bit away, what's in the future. And we miss the gift of presence, of the present, of his presence. I'd love to say, I got that mastered but it's still a work in progress. I'm easily sidetracked and distracted. But the truth is, hurry is one of the major barriers, if not the single major barrier to keeping us from being with God, of experiencing his presence and of knowing his blessing. When considering the call to ministry at Willow Creek, John Ortberg asked Dallas Willard how his soul was, would be able to survive in the busyness of a large church in a very large city. And Willard responded, ruthlessly eliminate hurry. And John Ortberg says, I wrote that down. I figured that was pretty good information. And then I looked back at him and I said, and what else? And Willard said, there is nothing else. Very few things require hurry. And none of us are so important that we need to hurry. When we hurry, we miss God. When we hurry, we miss his blessings. And hurrying makes us more unloving and more unlovable and might even give us a wine shampoo. Once we learn to slow down, to not always be in a hurry, to not be controlled by our to-do list, to be able to relinquish always having to have it our way in our time, to be able to let others go in front of us, we'll discover there is more of God that is beginning to show in and through us. One of the few blessings of the recent pandemic was that it forced people to slow down. Suddenly people were having to stay at home more, to spend more time with their family and with their friends. It was a hard transition for us. But after some initial adjustments, most people realized that they really rather enjoyed the slower pace of life and the relationships that blossomed. Sadly, with the lifting of the protocols, we have quickly embraced hurry all over again. Truth is, it's not physically healthy. It's not emotionally healthy. But most of all, it is spiritually dangerous. Third, people will look differently at us 
when we see them having been with God. You see, people are a huge part of our lives. We have to live with them. We have to interact with them. At some point, we need to be able to get along with them. How well we do that largely depends on the health and the well-being of our soul. And the well-being of our soul depends on how much time we have been with God. When we're with God, we increasingly tend to see them as God sees them. If we are conscious of God's presence, it impacts how we respond. When we see others as God sees them, as people God created, as people he sent his son, his only son, to die for, we will engage them as Christ would engage them. And that will distinguish us for most of the others in their life. Paul says in 2 Corinthians, from now on, regard no one from a worldly point of view. See them as Jesus sees them. Too often we see each other through the world's glasses. We put on masks so the world won't be able to see us, except as we want them to see us. And so we greet each other and say, how you doing? And the typical response is, doing fine, how are you doing? truth is, most of the time we're lying. We're not actually fine at all. But we can't let anybody know we're not fine because what would they think about us if we weren't fine? If we're confident that people would see us and respond to us as God sees us and God responds to us, perhaps we could be more honest. I'm tired. I'm struggling financially. My wife and I, it's not going as well as it used to. My son is 20. He still doesn't know Jesus. Imagine how our lives and imagine how his church would be different if we were able to respond to what's going on and to other people through Jesus' eyes, through Christ's eyes, and with Christ's heart. But the truth is that can only happen if we're spending quantity and quality time with him. And it begins in the living room of our heart, face to face with Jesus. In the beginning, God created a perfect place where our soul could be with his heart and we could be together. In fact, that's actually why he created us, so that he could walk with us, so he could be with us. But in our busyness, we walk by. We're usually in a hurry to get to something on our agenda. But even if we've ignored him for long periods of time, even if we haven't been into the living room for months or perhaps even years, he's still sitting there and he still offers us the opportunity to come and to sit with him. So he can look us in the face and invite us to look him in the face. He wants us back. He longs to spend time with us. St. Augustine acknowledges in his confessions, he writes, you have made us Lord for yourself, and our heart is restless until it rests in you. We must consciously and continuously ask ourselves, where is God in this moment? and seek with all our heart to join him there. 
we know one thing. Christ is in our living room. In the living room of our heart. Don't let him wait there all alone. Accept his invitation. Go in and sit with him and do it often. Do it regularly. Remain a while. And your soul will find rest in him.